What are the three phases of salvation? Do you know off the top of your head? We're going to talk about it today and more on BibleStudyPodcast.org starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Monday, October the 1st of 2008, and I'm your host, as always, Toby Logsdon, and I want to welcome you guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today is going to be our last lesson on the essentials. So welcome. I hope you guys have enjoyed this study as much as I have, and uh, this last lesson is really going to wrap it all up and bring us to a close but uh, man, this has been a great study and something that you know we can reference in the future, you know, in case we have any questions. So anyway, God bless you guys. I hope you guys are having a fantastic week. Uh, if you guys want to keep me in prayer about something, you know, we've had our inspection and everything for our house, and it didn't come back so good. We might have some structural issues with the house, and we're not sure how much that's going to cost to fix. We're just hoping it's low. So if you guys could keep me in prayer for that, I sure would appreciate it. But uh, I wanted to let you guys know that the stickers, the clear window stickers that I had ordered are in. And if you want to get one, all you have to do is email me and let me know. That's all you have to do. And I will mail it to you. I will pay the shipping and everything. I will mail you a sticker. All you have to do is email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com and uh, give me your address and I will send one to you. So if that's something that you want, that's something that you can have for free. And if you make a donation to Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries uh, this month, you will get uh, our latest booklet which is Defending the Trinity Against the Oneness Pentecostal Movement. So if that's something that you want, you can make a tax-deductible donation to our ministry at BibleStudyPodcast.org. Over on the right-hand side, you'll see a support box, and you can click there and make a tax-deductible donation there. So uh, anyway, if that's something you would like to do and something that you're interested in, definitely you know how to do it. So anyway, let's go ahead and get started with today's lesson with a quick word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you so much for your word and for this study and for all the things that we've learned in this study. And Lord, we just pray that you would uh, help us wrap this up today so that it all makes sense and help us to understand what your word tells us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome to our final lesson on the essentials. And of course, this is a, a study series that we've done, which has been based on the book Conviction Without Compromise, which was written by uh, Dr. Norman Geisler and Dr. Ron Rhodes. Now, we've covered all the basics, all of the doctrines which define Christianity, except for this one today that we're going to be covering. But because we've reached a deeper understanding of these essential beliefs, we can now understand why cults are what they are, and that is cults. It's because they deviate from these essential doctrines. Sometimes they deviate explicitly, such as how the Jehovah's Witnesses explicitly deny the entire concept of the Trinity, and sometimes they deviate implicitly, such as how Mormons uh, seem to believe what we do, but what they do is they use the same terminology that we use, but they use different meanings and different definitions for their doctrinal terms than we do. Now, over the past three lessons, we've covered what I would refer to as the fundamentals of the fundamentals. That is, we've talked about 
the basis upon which we can draw the doctrines which are essential to Christianity. We talked about how the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God. And last week we had a video lesson in which I taught you how to use logic to demonstrate that the Bible is inerrant. And we talked about how to respond to the objection that the Bible has copyist errors in it. And by the way, I hope you guys liked that lesson. Uh, That was something that I had a lot of fun doing for you guys. And I hope that it was something that was, um, you know, educational to you guys. But, you know, then a couple weeks ago, you know, back a little bit further, we talked about the literal, historical, grammatical method of interpretation, which is the same method of interpretation that we use in everyday communication. And we established that that is the only uh, you know, method of interpretation that is valid for interpreting the Bible. Now, there are two final issues that we find in this book, Conviction Without Compromise, uh, that we haven't covered yet. The first is the intercession of Christ. Uh, that is the fact that Jesus is our mediator and he's in heaven at the right hand of the Father uh, pleading our case uh, and, and, you know, being our uh, defense. But, you know, I kind of feel like we have addressed this in other previous lessons. So uh, I didn't think that this was something that was really necessary to have its own lesson for because we did cover that in the lesson on grace. But the second essential doctrine uh, that's left that we haven't covered, which will be the last one we discuss, is the bodily return of Christ. Now, you might be wondering why this is essential or why it matters, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But first, let's take a look at what Scripture says about why it's necessary for Jesus to return. Well, before we do that, I think it's important that we acknowledge the fact that people have different interpretations as to just when Jesus is going to return. Some believe that Jesus will return after the Great Tribulation. Some believe he will return at the midway point of the Great Tribulation. And some, like myself, believe that he will return just prior to the Great Tribulation. Now, all of these views are doctrinally acceptable. They are fine. They are orthodox because all these positions maintain that Jesus is coming back. What is doctrinally unacceptable is the belief that Jesus either A, isn't coming back at all, or B, the belief that Jesus already came back but then returned to heaven again. Uh, why, Why are these positions unacceptable? Well, it's because in order to arrive at these positions, one has to interpret Scripture inconsistently. You know, you'd have to take a verse and take parts of that verse literally and other parts of it figuratively, even though they're written in the same sense. Now, there are some key elements of the essential beliefs about the return of Jesus. First, it involves a literal bodily return of Jesus to earth, whereby he brings an end to the dominion of sin, and he ushers in righteousness and peace in its place. Secondly, there will be an eternal separation of humanity into two groups. There will be the saved, who are going to enjoy conscious eternal life, and there are the lost, who will be condemned to consciously experience anguish in hell. Third, there will be a bodily resurrection of all of the saved and all of the unsaved. The saved will there receive glorified bodies. And this is uh, this is when we experience a personal transformation that puts us into a state of perfect and permanent righteousness. These are all things that preterists and others who deny the future coming of Christ deny. Now, having established this, we're ready to look at some of the scriptural evidence for the effect that the second coming of Christ will have on believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10, we read that, quote, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now, 
What's Paul referring to here? He clarifies it in the following two verses, which say, quote, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with the childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Now, what Paul's talking about here is the day that we see God face to face. And when that happens, we will become God's perfected work. Our sin nature will be destroyed in that moment. Now, as we've discussed in the the Romans lessons recently, for example, our sin nature is not an essential aspect or attribute of our personhood or of our humanity. It's an aspect that was added to our nature, but it is not essential to human nature. When we see God face to face, that addition to our nature, that sin nature that we have, will be removed and permanently destroyed. You know, currently, we are unable to see God face to face. And of course, God told Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. So uh, there will come a day when we will see God face to face, but we can't do it now. And John writes of a similar uh, experience in First John chapter three verses two and three, where we read, quote, "When he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure." End quote. So whereas we currently cannot see God and live, when we are immortal and in God's presence, we will see him, we will see his face, and as a result, we will live forever. In Revelation 22, 4, we read, quote, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And this is what we refer to as the beatific vision. And then in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, Paul tells us that on that day, Jesus, quote, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So this is the final step in the salvation process. The initial step is justification, and that's when God declares us righteous and removes the penalty of sin from us. The second step is sanctification, where God molds us in his likeness and removes the power of of sin from us. And finally, the third step is glorification, which is when our sin nature is destroyed and we are removed from the presence of sin. See, if we deny the bodily return of Christ when he comes to establish his kingdom on earth, we have to believe that sin has won because God was not able to overcome it. You've maybe heard uh, something like this from non-believers. You know, if God is all-powerful, he could stop evil. If God is all-loving, he would stop evil. Yet evil persists. Therefore, God is either not powerful or not all-loving or both. And we respond by saying that God has not yet defeated evil, but he promises us in his word that it will be defeated forever. It will be quarantined so that those who insist on uh, continuing in evil in hell are free to do so, but they will be bound within the confines of hell. For that reason, those of us who are in heaven will be forever separated from the presence of sin, from the presence of evil. Now, without this third step in the salvation process, glorification, without glorification, we will continue to have a sinful nature and will thus never be free from sin. But, you know, one of the great promises of the Christian faith is that we will go to heaven and that there will be no sin 
in heaven. Now, when we talk about there being no sin in heaven, a very, very serious objection gets raised. They say, if there's no sin in heaven, then we're not free to sin. If we're not free to sin, then there is no real freedom in heaven. And a lot of skeptics have reached this very conclusion by that very same line of reasoning. So if we are not free to sin, and freedom is an essential aspect of moral existence, how can heaven be pure moral goodness if we're not free to sin? Well, the answer is actually pretty straightforward. Right now, we are able to not sin. That is, we are able to walk away from a situation, for example, in which we would sin. But in our glorified state, we will no longer be able to sin. And this is not a loss of freedom. To the contrary, this is the gaining of perfect freedom. Perfect freedom is not the freedom to be a a slave to sin if we want to be, or to have the ability to sin if we want to. It's the freedom of being delivered from sin. In in marriage, for example, you know, somebody makes the free choice to forsake all others for their spouse. And, uh, you know, would you say that this is a lack of freedom? Absolutely not. This is a fulfillment of freedom because we'll be free from all bondage, including bondage to sin and including bondage to temptation to sin. You know, when Jesus came the first time, he defeated the power of sin and Satan officially, but at his second coming, he will defeat the power of sin and of Satan actually and finally. It's a done deal. At this point, it's just a matter of time. I suppose, you know, it's not surprising in closing that the Jehovah's Witnesses deny the bodily return of Christ, since they, you know, it's not a surprise because they deny just about everything else we've covered in this series, uh, which is why they're a cult. But, you know, early in the history of the Jehovah's Witness cult, they taught that Jesus came back spiritually in 1874. But, you know, if you call them out on this, uh, you can make them extremely uncomfortable because they started teaching shortly thereafter that Christ would return physically in 1914. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses were teaching that in 1914, Jesus would come back for those who were faithful to Jehovah, uh, and that human governments would be overthrown by the kingdom of God on earth. Well, that obviously didn't happen. You know, 1914 came and went, and nothing happened. Sounds like a false prophecy or something along those lines, right? Well, Yes, it is. But instead of accepting that, Jehovah's Witnesses revised their theology to state that the return in 1914 was an invisible and spiritual second coming. But wait, didn't they say that he spiritually returned in 1874? Yes, they did. Oops. Well, you know, in order to arrive at their position, what did they have to do? They had to spiritualize the biblical texts that tell of a literal, physical bodily return of Christ. They had to forsake the literal historical grammatical method of interpretation of Scripture. Not that they ever use it to begin with, but this is just an example of one place where it's really, really obvious that they have completely abandoned it. Uh, another group that uh, that denies the bodily return of Christ is the New Age. The New Age philosophy also denies it. According to uh, New Age guru, so to speak, David Spangler, he says, quote, the second coming is occurring now, in the hearts and minds of millions of individuals of all faiths, as they come to realize this spiritual presence within themselves and each other. That's a quote straight from David Spangler, totally new age guy. But, you know, without the bodily return of Christ, the Davidic covenant also goes unfulfilled. God promised David that one of his heirs would reign in Jerusalem 
forever. Now, obviously that hasn't happened yet. So are we to assume that God breaks his promises? Of course not. Therefore, since it hasn't happened yet, it will be fulfilled in the future when Christ returns. If there is no bodily return of Christ, there is no kingdom of God to be established on earth, in which case evil wins out over God's righteousness. And for that reason, we hold that the bodily return of Christ is a doctrine that is essential to Christianity and one that we cannot and will not compromise on. Now, again, as I do every week, I would encourage you guys to pick this book up. It's on our recommended reading list on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, which was recently updated with a few more books, by the way. So check that out if that's something that you're interested in. You know, it's important for us to realize what the essentials of our faith are so that we can know where we must allow grace on doctrinal issues. For example, can a hyper-Calvinist who believes that God predestines some for heaven and some for hell be just as much of a Christian as an Armenian who believes that we can you know, lose our salvation by sinning? Well, yes, they can both love Jesus just as much as the other does. What about baptism? Can people who believe in baptism by full immersion be just as Christian as people who believe that baptism should be by sprinkling? Well, of course. Well, what about churches that play rock and roll worship music instead of hymns? They can't be as good of Christians as churches with no instruments except the organ, right? Well, no. You see, these are all examples of areas where we need to have grace. We need to have grace in these areas because none of these areas are doctrinally essential. We should have unity. We should all have unity on the essential doctrines because everything else really boils down to just different strokes for different folks. And it's more important for us to have unity with each other than it is for us to be right about something that doesn't have any major doctrinal significance. But we have established what the essentials are. We're going to stick to these. Everything else, you know, we we have to be able to show grace on. And you know, believe me, with, with me, you guys probably know how I am now. Uh, I don't like to to bend on anything, but God is teaching me how to be humble and how to give grace uh, on issues that don't matter. Uh, And praise the Lord for that. You know, we all are in this learning process together. So anyway, I want to let you guys know that the next series that we're going to be doing on Wednesdays is going to be a study on the attributes of God. This is going to be just awesome. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. Getting to know the attributes of God is absolutely essential to understanding who God is and how he works. You know, what does the Bible tell us about God's nature? That's what we're going to be discussing. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and I hope you join us for that. Uh, I have no idea how long that's going to go. It's probably going to be somewhere, you know, about as long as our series here on The Essentials has been. But, man, this has been a great series, and I hope the next series is just as good. So I hope you join us for it. But anyway, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you have any questions, you can email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. And let me know if you want one of those stickers. But anyway, I'll see you next time on BibleCityPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus.
This lesson has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org, a paraministry of Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which is a nonprofit listener-supported ministry based in Monroe, North Carolina. While our desire is that your primary giving be done with your local church, if the Lord is leading you to support our ministry, we do depend on your support to keep our ministry going and growing. If you feel the Lord calling you to support our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcast.org and click on support on the right-hand side. You can make a tax-deductible donation from there. By doing so, you'll be helping us to reach multitudes of people each and every month from around the world who, just like yourself, desire to find answers and meaning in Scripture. We thank you for listening today, and we pray that the Lord blesses you and draws you closer to Him. Keep growing closer to Jesus. Thank you.